Hello and welcome to episode 37 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with nine years experience in Brazil and China. This week, I bring you a special first ever crossover episode in collaboration with OnSpec Podcast. OnSpec is a really amazing podcast I stumbled across at the start of the year with radio quality stories from freelancers all over the world. I was impressed by how they seek to tell stories that are often not told in the mainstream media because there is no hook that relates it to the United States or Europe. It's reporting about the Global South, generally by people from the Global South. And most all of their episodes involve personal elements from their impressive team of freelance journalists. In their first season, they did reports on truffle foragers in the deserts of Iraq, a Bolivian musician on the streets of Istanbul, and treasure hunters in Afghanistan. Then, when the pandemic hit, OnSpec quickly turned to reporting on the coronavirus. Their coronavirus episodes include one that is an intimate portrait of a journalist in Turkey who gets coronavirus, and another about how Christians, Jews, and Muslims are adjusting their worship habits based on the pandemic. We recorded this episode in April, just when they were starting their second season on coronavirus, and since then they've been getting grants and other support, which will allow them to have a third and even fourth season. So a big congrats to OnSpec. It's been a pleasure to watch them grow, even in the short six months since we recorded this. Please go check them out wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll notice this interview is also in their feed. So what you'll find here is an interview with the host of OnSpec, Fariba Nawa. When I set out to do this episode, I really didn't know what I was getting into. I love OnSpec the podcast, but what did I know about Fariba? Not much. Who knows? Maybe there wasn't much of a story to tell about her life or career. But it turns out she is a unique and powerful story to tell. I feel strongly about all of my interviews. Some are funny, some are entertaining, some are poignant. But this interview really moved me, both while doing it and listening back while editing. Born in Herat, Afghanistan, Fariba fled the country with her family when she was nine years old and grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. She talks about her struggles with the patriarchal community there, difficult battles, but ones I would say she ultimately wins. Instead of shying away from the refugee experience, she steers right into the sun, returning to the Middle East and South Asia to report, much to the befuddlement of her parents. She also discusses her book, Opium Nation, and why she can't go back to Afghanistan after its publication. There's a certain raw quality to this interview. Fariba doesn't avoid hard-to-talk-about issues, much like her work as a journalist that champions women and underreported stories. Fariba has not had an easy life, There are definitely some notes of tragedy and melancholy, but she also has that classic journalist's gallows humor, laughing in the face of adversity. So, time to hear for yourselves what I'm talking about. Here's my interview with Fariba Nawa, a freelance journalist based in Istanbul, Turkey, and the host of the OnSpec podcast. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Jake, for having me. Just to start to set the scene a little bit, if you could tell me what time it is there, where you are, and a little bit about what the last week has been like for you in regards to work. I'm in Istanbul, Turkey, and I'm in my apartment, which I share with my children and family. And right now I'm sitting in the room that we've turned into an office slash guest room overlooking a park with a lot of greenery, which is a treat here because Istanbul is a city of 18 million. And greenery is always something that you want to be close to or the seaside, which I don't have a view of. It's about 2.15 in the afternoon here. And last week has been lockdown. You know, we're living during a pandemic right now and 
I've been working from home, which I do normally anyway, but now it's not much of a choice. I used to go to cafes to a work space overlooking the seaside, and now it's all been at home. And I've had to sort of figure out how to take care of my children and work from home. And I've been covering things having to do with the coronavirus, like every other journalist lately. And the schedule is very off. It's not like I have a structured schedule like I used to, because as things happen, as things come in, I'm constantly reading the news and trying to keep up with friends, but it's mostly online. So that's the big difference. So then to get to the main part of the interview, which is how you got to where you are, if you could start way, way back at where were you born, what your family was like, and what growing up and kind of your early education years were like. Sure. I'm from Herat, Afghanistan. That's where I was born. And I grew up there until I was nine years old. Herat is on the border of Iran. So I speak Farsi or Persian. It's uh, one of the main languages of Afghanistan. That's my mother tongue. And I was five when the communist coup happened in Afghanistan and then the subsequent Soviet invasion. And I grew up after that in a war zone. So my life as a child, my childhood was trying to deal with things that no children has to deal with. Um, I witnessed my classmate die. I lost my uncle. Our family went through a lot and my family was educated. We were part of the elite. We were not rich. We were middle class, but we were able to get out before anything horrible happened to my parents or my close family members. I have a brother and a sister, and I have a very large extended family. I have 62 first cousins, um, a lot of aunts and uncles. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we all left. There are very few people left. They're distant family members, and I keep in touch with the people who did stay because I returned. I was one of the family members who did return and who did live in Afghanistan and again. But my early years and my early memories are very special to me. That was the foundation of my identity. Whether it was good or bad, it made me who I am in many ways, especially in terms of resilience and being able to deal with trauma and that sort of refugee experience. I call myself a perennial refugee. I kind of take pride in that word now. And so when I was nine... We left. And the way we left, we didn't get on a plane and end up coming to America. It was your typical refugee story. My father rented two donkeys. We had to walk through the desert from Afghanistan to Iran. We crossed the front line between the Mujahideen and the Soviets who were fighting at the time. We didn't know if we would survive. All of our belongings were on two donkeys. My mom and sister wore a burqa. My brother had already left through Pakistan and ended up in Germany. And so my father, after my school was bombed, he was a big supporter of women's education. And his entire family, they were sort of very much into women's rights. This was one of the pillars of their identity as a family. They were modernists and very much part of that modernization project, which started with King Amanullah during the early 20th century, in the time of, you know, Ataturk was in Turkey then, Reza Shah Pahlavi was in Iran, and Amanullah was in Afghanistan. And the only one who actually kind of succeeded with that project was Ataturk in Turkey. And so that was my interest in Turkey from day one. So my family was part of that project. And that project included women's rights and women's education. So when my school was bombed and my sister and I could no longer really go to school because it closed down, for my father, that was the end. There was no reason to stay. 
in Afghanistan anymore. And he didn't want to leave. For him, everything was there. And he was in his 50s. My mom was in her 40s, but they said that it's time to leave. And I felt their pain when they left. So that was also like, as children, we understood our parents and what they were giving up. We eventually got to the Iranian border. It took us six hours to get there. And this was after the Iranian revolution had taken place during the Iran-Iraq war. It's 1982. And so we went from one war zone to another. We stayed in Iran for a month. And then after that, we went to Pakistan through the tri-border area. And we stayed in Pakistan for about 10 months not knowing what was going to happen. We were in Islamabad, the capital, but it was very easy to get refugee status then. We were the first exodus of Afghans leaving, and it was mostly the technocrats, the elites. And so it was the largest refugee population at the time, six million of us. But it was much easier than now to end up somewhere safe. So it took us 10 months to get acceptance or an asylum to the United States. And we ended up in Texas first. And I only spoke two words of English, which were, oh, thank wow. you. Thank you. That was it. And we ended up behind a garage, someone's garage. They gave us, and we made it into a home. And there were worms and bugs. And it was, you know, a typical refugee story, I suppose, in some ways. Now that I cover the migration and I cover refugees, so much of what I do is what I went through. So much of what I cover is, is almost the same, except that we had it easier. I mean, during the Reagan administration, it was not so the way that it is with Trump. So that's how we left Afghanistan. And we ended up in the United States. And then after three months of being in Dallas, Fort Worth, my father was like, I have a cousin in California. Let's go there. I think it's a nicer place. So we got on a Greyhound bus and we drove through New Mexico and Arizona and ended up in San Francisco, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and sort of became the pioneers of the largest Afghan community in the United States in Fremont, California, which we call Little Kabul now. And my family, they're kind of founders of that. And I grew up you know, my high school years, middle school years there. And then I ended up leaving to go to a university in the East Coast. And part of the reason for that is because when you're part of a diaspora community, it can be quite suffocating. And there's a lot of identity issues that go on there's, as a woman inside our communities. As a girl, it's very difficult to navigate and to gain your freedoms. And so one way to do it was to leave for college. Because again, my family was very much pro-education. And that was one way to say, okay, I need some room to breathe. I did well in high school, so I was able to get scholarships. And I chose to go to Hampshire College, which was, you know, completely different than my small little conservative community in California. I don't know if you're familiar mm -hmm. with Hampshire College. Hampshire is an experimental alternative education, and I loved it. I actually have to say uh, it was one of the best decisions I made, but also because they gave me a full scholarship. It was a $100,000 scholarship at the time. There was no way my family was going to be able oh, to wow. afford that. Yeah. And it's sad to see that Hampshire right now is really struggling financially because they don't have the same alumni base that the more traditional Ivy Leaguers or private colleges do. But it was really an awakening of an experience having access to that kind of East Coast literati experience. Also, just I loved Amherst, Massachusetts. It was sort of these rolling hills and I had read Thoreau and Emerson and Emily Dickinson in high school. And so I really wanted to be part of that experience. But Hampshire itself was such a <laughs> liberal, <laughs> almost too liberal for me at the time. They were way ahead of their time. The things that young people are talking about now, we were talking about Hampshire then. 
for example, being non-binary, LGBT experiences, gender being a construct. I mean, all these things that are being discussed openly and more mainstream now was a part of my college experience. And at the time, I didn't really grasp onto it because, again, I was coming from such strong patriarchal norms. For me, it was just like, wow, what's going on here? All I want to do is wear what I want, you know? <laughs> so it was like, you know, if I want to wear a mini, if I want to wear a mini skirt, I don't want to have to fight for it. But there were girls who wouldn't shave their legs. There were guys wearing skirts at Hampshire. The condoms were being passed around in bathrooms and you were free to have sex all you wanted with whatever gender if you wanted. Classes were held outside with drum beats. Uh, professors, you didn't call them professor, you called them by their first names. I mean, it was a hippie school. It was like Berkeley in the 1960s, I suppose. And to me, I was like, what's going on here? I went from, it was like black and white, just the extreme opposites. And so I made friends with sort of the foreign student crowd. And then my interest in journalism actually started way before that. It started when I was 12 years old. I wrote a story about this experience of being a refugee. And my teacher, who was an African-American English teacher, she said, Fariba, you can write. And she said, you know, you should think about writing more. I won some Young Authors Award at that point. I was in the seventh grade. And I thought, writing? Okay, great. But you know what? I'd rather be a journalist. So th that's kind of how it all started. At the age of 12, I decided I wanted to be a journalist. Because it, the, all the things that I wanted were part of that traveling. And I, I knew from day one that it would not be covering domestic issues. It would be international journalism. Because people like me should be doing international journalism because we had access. I saw myself as this cultural translator between different parts of the world that I had planned to travel. And that's kind of how it all started. And then when I was in college, Hampshire College didn't have these very... Uh, that's part of why I liked it. It wasn't like, you know, you, you're a journalism major or you're a communications major. It wasn't like that. It was interdisciplinary. And so you did project-based stuff. Everything we did was a 20-page paper. And then you didn't get grades. You didn't get A, B, C, D. The professor would write an evaluation of what the class was about and what your performance in the class was. And it was a very deep education and so I came out of it learning journalism, but really journalism, we know, you and I know that you learn in the field more than anything else. The beauty of that liberal arts education was learning how to critically think about things, learning how to see the world through a very open lens rather than this sort of binary everything, you know, East, West, Occident, Orient. The way that I used to think in high school about things changed a lot in college. And that opened up the way that I wanted to do my journalism, the way I was planning to cover the Middle East. And of course, the Middle East was my first interest. So I started studying Arabic and strengthening my Farsi and then always wanting to go back home, you know, always wanting to go back to Afghanistan. I don't think anybody in my family was as interested as going back to Afghanistan as I was. And I think that's because for me, I was the youngest. I wasn't as scarred as everyone else. And the memories were not as strong as everyone else's. I mean, my sister still hasn't gone back and has no desire to. She said goodbye in a very traumatic way to Afghanistan. And so we have all had our own experiences of going home from my mom to dad, my father who's passed away and my sister and brother. But for me, it became work as well. It wasn't just a personal experience. So that, <laughs> I'll stop if you want to ask any other questions. That's sort of the long version. No, that's fascinating. I was going to ask, you said you moved to Texas at first. 
first. And at that point, you only speak a couple words of English. But then you mentioned by seventh grade, which can only be like a couple years later, you're writing well to the point that, you know, your teacher says you should become a writer. It's something so heavily language based that uh, I guess I was just surprised how quickly you took to it. Did you have any, and also did you have it at that point, any representations of journalists and things like that? And how did that happen so quickly, do you think? I always liked to read. That was part of my upbringing. So I only got to go to the second grade in Afghanistan. I never went to the third grade. I came to the U.S. and I was put in the fourth grade. So I skipped part of my education, I suppose, and it was mostly in Farsi at that point and very broken because when you're in a war zone, school is not a priority, your life is. And I think because Farsi is an Indo-European language, and this is my own observation, it's easier for us Afghans to learn English. We pick it up very quickly. And up until the age of 12, most of us don't have like a foreign accent. We tend to have a native, whatever accent we're in, if we were in New York. Like I have cousins who have a Brooklyn accent. (laughs) And so it becomes part of that experience of integration. But also when I was in fourth grade, I was getting some ESL, English as a second language help. I picked it up very quickly from American TV. I used to watch a lot of TV to the dismay of my parents. And, and I think that's, that's how it worked out. But in terms of journalism, no, initially I didn't. I knew that I wanted to write. And I think that has to do with my father's background. So there is some family connection there. And my dad used to say that. My grandfather was a writer, an essayist. He wrote a lot of political essays for the local newspaper in Herat. He was politically active, had been exiled at some point for his views. And my father himself became involved, not in politics, but did write a lot. And so I kind of picked up on it, but in a different language. And so it was kind of a family tradition, I suppose. And almost everyone in my dad's family has a pen name. My aunt writes poetry. So also where I come from in Herat, literature and Persian, Farsi, you know, we have a very strong tradition of poetry. We have Rumi, most people know that we read, and Hafiz. The Persian poets were part of our weekend experience. We would sit around reading poetry. Back then, there was no TV or, or internet. And so we would sit around in the wintertime and drink tea after dinner, have dried fruits, and read poetry. And sometimes we told our fortune by reading Hafiz, one of the poets. So that's kind of how I grew up. And so writing in English It seemed just like a natural progression. As far as journalism was concerned, Afghanistan doesn't have a strong tradition of journalism. And so I think it was really in high school when I joined the school newspaper. And my high school was 3,000 people. So it was kind of like a little town. And all of these issues from racism to sexism to a lot like teen pregnancy, we covered so many interesting things back then. And I'm talking about this is like 1990. (laughs) I graduated in 92 from high school. And so I loved it. It was fascinating to me. And then I started reading the New York Times because that was foreign coverage. That's where it came from. And I joined a youth publication called Youth Outlook. There was a news service called Pacific News Service in San Francisco. Again, they were sort of this alternative niche news agency that allowed people like me from low-income, marginalized communities to come and join and write about our experiences. And a woman named Sandy Close, who's still active in journalism, but PNS Pacific News Service doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. She took a chance on a lot of us. And we started this small newspaper for young people called Youth Outlook. 
And we would even go to incarcerated youth and write their stories. Like my serious journalism started in high school, actually. And so immediately I was drawn to it. The career path was kind of chosen for me. It was more of a calling rather than like, oh, let me see what I can be. Should I be a doctor, a lawyer, a journalist? Never thought about being anything else. I think that's kind of a privilege, actually, because you don't have the paradox of choice. And my parents never stood in the way of it. There were some family members who were like, well, what is this? Are you going to make any money? And so that was the other thing I really appreciated about my family as an immigrant family. They were not materialistic. They didn't think about these things about, oh, you have to make money. Never. It was always like, whatever you want to do, we support. But my mother was more conservative. So she was like, well, just make sure you don't go outside the norms of what a girl should do, which, of course, I did. And we dealt with that. <laughs> yeah, like a girl eventually should you know, get married, have four children and come and live next to her parents. And that didn't happen. It did for a period right. of time, but not too long. Yeah. So it was sort of a quiet struggle with the community rather than my father. You'll hear this from a lot of Muslim women or Afghan women specifically. You need a man to back you up a lot in order to be able to lift yourself out of these communities. And that's a sad statement to make. But I've seen that over and over and over again. You need a male ally, whether it's a brother or your father or your uncle. So for me, it was my dad. And I don't think that I could have been here if he hadn't backed me up every time, every time there was an argument about where I was going or what I was doing, or I was going too far with what I was writing, my dad would say, listen, it's her right. And that's all he had to say. And because he was a man who was a respected man in the community, nobody else had a right to stand in the way. That's all super interesting stuff I wouldn't have thought of. But what did your father end up doing in the States out of curiosity? My father, well, it's kind of the sad part. So you know, I wrote a book called Opium Nation, we can discuss, but it had to become a memoir because I couldn't really sell it. Otherwise, they wanted an American story in there and mine had to be. And initially, I really, really resented that in the publishing industry and in journalism, that I couldn't just write about my country from a third person point of view that I had to be in it. And then I kind of just appreciated it because it allowed me to tell my family story. And my father is the big character in the book. And he didn't work. He only worked for a couple of years at a nonprofit helping other refugees. He became depressed and he sort of threw himself into being a father and taking me to school, picking me up, making sure he filled out all the documents. I mean, he really didn't. We kids had to support us. And initially we were on welfare. Yeah. And the California welfare system was great at that time. It did help families and immigrants and it gave housing opportunities. So we had that. We had a lot of aid to keep us going. And my mom was ill. She was disabled. She had back problems. She couldn't really work. So it was on us kids. My brother would help from Germany. And then he moved with his family. And my sister has been working since I can remember. She was 17 when she started. And I started working when I was 13. I started as a babysitter. I cleaned homes. I worked as a waitress. I don't remember not working. So for us, you know, that's the immigrant experience. You do what you have to do. You suck it up. You take care of your parents and you love them for it. It was such a different experience than having non-immigrant friends who kind of blame their parents for whatever they were. That still kind of boggles my mind. I had these white friends who had everything. Their parents gave them everything and they were still not appreciative of what their parents gave them. And almost every issue they had 
with themselves, lack of self-esteem, low grades, they always blame their parents instead of taking responsibility. Whereas I found with like my immigrant friends, we had the opposite experience. You know, this whole thing that struggle makes you stronger if it doesn't scar you. And it's true. In my case, it was true. Life was never easy, but we made it work no matter what. And so my father's experience of exile, I did a TED talk, if anybody's interested in watching, because my father eventually got Alzheimer's and I stayed with him until he died. He was sort of the example of Afghanistan for me and all the goodness of Afghanistan and sort of his fall and his depression and the way that he dealt with it, eventually his alcoholism. And this is the first time I'm coming out with this publicly after his death. I don't even talk about the alcoholism in the book because it's taboo. You know, you're not supposed to drink. But I think it's time to come out and be transparent about some of these things. That was all a metaphor for the fall of Afghanistan, for me as well as for him. I took him back to Afghanistan while I was working there. And he got even more depressed after he saw what it had become. So my father was just a broken man in a lot of ways. And his hope was us. It was me, my sister, my brother. And he did invest in us. He was not a violent alcoholic. He was not in that way abusive. He was a quiet man who just went into his corner. But someone we had to take care of in a lot of ways. And I understood that. So I think that's a, the very, like, very personal, but I don't mind sharing because I've written about some of it. Wow, that's a lot to have on your shoulders when you're growing up. And so that's why I find it particularly interesting that you went back to the Middle East. What happens next? How did people react? Once, I think my parents were shocked when I moved away. I don't think they expected me to just get up and leave. But they, like, whatever I did, it stopped shocking them after a while. (laughs) And so once I graduated, I said, I'm moving to Egypt because I had gone as a study abroad and I wanted to work there. There was an internship through the American University in Cairo, and I had been learning Arabic. I'd been learning modern standard Arabic, and I wanted to practice and learn it. At this point, I wasn't ready to go back to Afghanistan because the civil war was happening, and it was being bombed to pieces between different Mujahideen factions. It wasn't safe. I decided to explore the Middle East itself rather than Afghanistan, which isn't really the Middle East. And going back to Egypt was great. I was able to advise this to a newspaper at the American University in Cairo. It was almost like a teaching position there. And experienced Cairo in the time of Mubarak and back then, the issues that you're seeing now were minimal. And my first foreign reporting experience was there. I wrote for the local Cairo Times, and I also was able just to understand what foreign reporting was. And then learn Arabic, learn the Egyptian dialect. And my sister had married an Egyptian, so I had relatives there. They were helpful. That helped my parents deal with the fact that their daughter was going across the world. And they helped me sort of settle in. So I spent a year in Egypt. Then I came back and started working for a newspaper in Fremont, California. It was called The Argus. And it was part of this conglomerate by a guy named Dean Singleton. And it was, you know, it was a daily newspaper. Back in the days, we had those. And that's how you started. It was journalism boot camp, I call it. We worked a lot. I worked a lot. I worked 12 hours a day. I learned the basics of journalism. I covered domestic violence. I covered court. I covered church, like lots of things. I learned pretty much everything that you need to know in basic journalism at the Argus. And then they did give me an opportunity to do like long investigative pieces. And that's what I enjoyed the most, right? So back then they had that apparatus with editors 
And some of the editors that I met there, one of them, I'll mention Mary Rajkumar, who works for AP now. She's taught me so much. I'm so grateful to her. We're still in touch. We're friends. And then after a couple of years of working there, there was not much more to learn. And I was kind of, well, this is American journalism and I'm tired of it. Do I want to move to D.C. and New York and do national reporting? No, I actually want to go back to the Middle East or South Asia. And how do I do that? And this is 1999. And I was making, I don't know, $28,000 a year while my friends in the tech industry, this is during the tech boom, right? Everyone had graduated college and friends who had studied philosophy and political science were now in tech and making thousands and thousands of dollars. It was the tech boom. And here I was, I was like, okay, I can't, I'm not going to do that. I'll just stick to this little newspaper job for now and sort of make do. And I got my own place. I moved out of my parents' house. And that was a big deal, Jake. It was, it really hurt my mom. I think it, it was like, for my mother, that was mm-hmm. an ultimate slap in the face. Because your daughter can go to university. It's okay in my community for the educated families. But for you to move out in my generation before being married was just so taboo. And I told her, mom, I love you. I really do. And I love my dad. And I think I'm going to appreciate you more if you understand that I cannot live. I will live in the same city. I'll see you once a week for sure, but I cannot live with you. And I think that hurt her a lot, but eventually she got used to it. I mean, that's kind of how, for me, my evolution of this cultural change and sort of training my parents, especially my mother, to come to terms with my changes was just to do it through a lot of discussion and love. And when that didn't work, I just did it. You just have to do it. I feel like a lot of us in these communities is sort of like shame-based communities who want to come out of our cocoon. Like, you have to be brave. You just have to have the guts to stand up to these things. Otherwise, we're stuck between this, okay, I want to respect my parents, so I'm going to wear a long skirt when I see them, and then when I come outside, then I'm going to wear the short skirt that I want. And I'm at that age now where I never want my daughters to do that. I want them to be honest with me. And I think that even for my parents, I, like, It's time to come out. Like, just say it. They will understand. The fear is that you're always going to be disowned. They will not do that. They might disown you for a year. They might be upset with you for a year. But at the end, you're their child. And I think love is more powerful than anything else. So kind of like all along the way, everything I was doing, especially in in my work as well. For my mother, it was just a quagmire. So I moved out and I worked at the Argus. And then after a couple of years, I said, what, what should I do? The trajectory back then, the way that you got ahead was you work at a daily newspaper, then you move on to the bigger papers that have a foreign desk. And the foreign bureau was sort of the coveted spot. You know, a lot of journalists wanted that spot and you had to work your way up. You had to do your time. You had to learn your language. You had to know what was going on in that country that you wanted to work in. You didn't just parachute in. You couldn't. That's the way that I understood it. That's the way I was told. If you want to be a respected foreign correspondent, go through the process. But things were changing. Things were changing very fast. Newspapers were going down the drain. Foreign bureaus were being closed as the tech industry was flourishing. The journalism industry was dissipating. This, it was changing. And, and I was like, wait a minute. I don't think I'm going to get a job at the San Francisco Chronicle, which barely has a foreign bureau or the Los Angeles Times or even the New York Times at this point, unless I just go. So I hatched a plan. I had a friend in Pakistan. The Taliban are in charge of Afghanistan. Pakistan had just had a military coup. 
And I had an American friend who was an anthropologist living in Pakistan with a refugee Afghan family. And I said, hey, um, I'm going to come and visit you. I just want to kind of gauge what's out there. Maybe I can apply for a job at the AP, Reuters, AFP, whoever's there and see what happens. And she's like, oh, yeah, come on down. I'm living with this Afghan family. They kind of take care of me and I take care of them. And I said, okay. So I didn't give up my job initially. I went for a visit. And when I went for a visit, I went to visit AP and all the places I said, and they just kind of looked at me like, what? Why are you here? You don't have any experience, really. What do you know? I said, well, I know the language and I know journalism and I know a lot of history about this place. Can you guys give me a chance? Just let me be an intern. And at that point, they just shut me down. They said no. And then I thought, okay, well, let me think about this some more. Let me go back. And I went back and then I told my parents and my family that I was going to quit my job and I was just going to move to Pakistan. And I wanted to eventually go into Afghanistan and report. And this is when my father was like, what? And this is the first time he just said, I don't get it. I took you out of there. Why would you go back? You know, I gave up everything. And we had a heart to heart. He didn't get it. And I think that was the first time where like, dad, you're just gonna, you know, I called him aqa. I was like, oh, you're just gonna have to let this go. Trust me on this. I got to do this. I can't keep working here. And, you know, for my family, at the end of the day, work was about making a living, was about making money. The idea of having a passion and having a career and especially being a woman was still way out there. You know, writing should be a hobby. For them, it wasn't about a career. And they didn't get it, but they didn't stop me. And so I quit my job. And then I, I went to Pakistan. I went back to Sandy Close and Pacific News Service. And I said, guys, I'm going to write articles for you. Can you publish them? And they said, well, send us what you have and we'll think about it. And so then I started writing about the refugees, the Afghan refugees. And then after 18 years, I went back home. And it was incredible. It was incredible. Emotionally, a very difficult watching what Afghanistan had become was devastating. I think that experience of being exiled and then having to go back and having to relive those memories. My step-grandmother was still there. My mom's cousins were there, so I stayed with them. It was under the Taliban. It was just awful. The stadium where I used to play and there were festivals was used as an execution field. I stood on the roof of my grandfather's orchard home. The orchard was where I played with my 24 cousins from my mom's side. And you could see the destruction. You could see this absolute devastation that Herat had become. And for women, it was the prison. I did get to go shopping with my cousins, but I had to wear burqa. So I was working undercover, literally. But in Herat, they kind of took it easy because Herat was religious already, so they didn't need to enforce things. And then I took a plane to Kabul and I went to Afghanistan through Iran. I got an Afghan passport, so I have citizenship both in the U.S. and Afghanistan. And I've traveled to Iran several times as an American as well. And I reported in Iran, and I, this is where the journey began of going back home and starting to report from Afghanistan. And then I took a plane from Herat to Kabul, and then eventually in a cab, I drove from Kabul back to the Pakistan border. It took 13 hours, and it was like six men and me <laughs> in a burqa. But I had a guide. I had someone, a fixer who was with me. I always went with someone from the area and it had to be a man. I call Afghanistan Manistan. <laughs> it still is like that. So as a foreign woman, you do have a lot of leeway. And nobody knew I was foreign because I was wearing a burqa. And at this point, I, nothing I was doing was being made public. 
But just seeing my family that had been left behind, going back to my childhood home, was really just such an emotional experience. I don't think I've ever experienced anything like that. And and so I came back, I wrote about it, it was published, and then I started to write about Pakistan. But then I got a job in Iran. While I had been in Iran, I went to AFP there, Agence France Press, and I said, yeah, you guys want to give me a job? <laughs> I speak Farsi, I can read and write, I speak English, and I have like a couple of years of journalism under my belt. Can you guys hire me? And the French English Bureau said, yeah, here, take a test. We need somebody right now. And, you know, I can't believe how easy it was back then. So I took a test in Farsi, I had to read a Farsi newspaper, and I had to translate it for your listeners, so Afghanistan, Iran, and Tajikistan, these are the countries that speak Farsi, and the reading and writing is the same for the most part, but they're very different dialects. And in Tajikistan, it's still written in Cyrillic, right? So we can understand each other, but the writing is between Iran and Afghanistan, it's mostly the same. And I speak the Iranian dialect of Farsi as well. So I don't remember his name, but he was so forthcoming. And he said, okay, well, we'll let you know if you get the job. Go back to Pakistan and we'll let you know. But you're going to become a local hire and we'll give you like $1,000 a month. And at that point, $1,000 a month in Iran went a long way. So I was really excited. I had a job at a foreign correspondence job. Like, what better is that? I went back to Pakistan after my trip to Afghanistan. And I had gotten a job in Pakistan as an English editor of a think tank publication. So I was doing fine there. And then I came back and I quit my job because they did call me from Iran. They said, you got the job. I was very excited. I really, I still do. One of my dreams is to report from Iran, to be based there, to report from there. It's a fascinating country. And I have never really had the opportunity to live there, visited and worked there. And so guess what happens next? (laughs) I quit my job in Pakistan and I'm ready to move to Iran. I apply, I tell the editor at AFP, that I am Afghan-American and that I do have both passports. And he says, well, okay, so we'll get the visa process started. A week later, he calls me and says, there is no way we can get you to come here. Basically, at that point, having both passports, which Iran didn't like either passports, the Iranian government was not on good terms with the U.S. or Afghanistan, and they don't want a journalist from those two countries coming to cover the news in English. And especially being of both. I think I was too much of a threat, even though I was a complete rookie. And I don't know, I think AFP rethought it and didn't really want to fight for it because I was a rookie. And I was so disappointed. You know, it was just like I had given up everything. I'd quit my job. I wasn't going to go back to it. What was I going to do? This was this amazing opportunity. And because of my nationalities, I was being rejected, not because of my skills. And that's kind of when I realized that Being a journalist, politics is going to be so intertwined with who I am and that it's going to limit what I do. So no matter how much we want to say, okay, we're not biased and we should be able to cover things no matter who we are from any country because we have an interest in it, it doesn't always work out that way. Because us seeing ourselves in that way doesn't mean that these other foreign governments or foreign countries or people of that country see you in the same way. Where you come from, what language you speak, what religion you are, all matters to them. It's very much a part of how people interact with you, the kind of access to information they give you. And that's been part of my recording experience for the last 20 years. It's been a lesson for me. 
eventually I was upset about it. It's like, wait, what does it matter where I come from? You should tell me what I need to know anyway. But now I've kind of embraced it and I understand why it is that way. So then I I did cry when that call came through that you can't come and you know we have to rescind our job offer. And this is 2000. And I said, okay, well, yeah, let me just apply for grad school. <laughs> that was the next step. Like, well, I'll go to journalism grad school, but where to go? And then I found this program at NYU, which was you could do a joint program between Middle Eastern studies and journalism. It was perfect. And I applied for it and I got the foreign language areas fellowship which is great because that pays for everything. And then so I went back to California and stayed there for a few months. My sister had just had her third child, so I was able to spend some time with my niece. I named her Yostra. So it was fun. I got to be with family again. And then I applied for grad school at NYU. And this was 2001. And at this point, uh, I was excited to move to New York finally. I had gone to college in the East Coast, but in Massachusetts, and now I was going to finally get to have a New York experience and be a student there at NYU. But I moved there in August of 2001, and you know what happens next, right? September 11th. And I was living in Brooklyn with a friend. School had just started. I think we were one or two weeks into the university, and we had a friend staying with us named Osama. He was Bangladeshi. He came downstairs that day. It was 9 a.m. And he said, Fariba, I think you need to come up to the roof. Something's happened. I went upstairs and I saw the smoke. And then we turned on the news. And I knew two days before, Ahmad Shah Massoud had been killed by Al-Qaeda. And Ahmad Shah Massoud was one of the leaders of the Mujahideen who had been fighting against the Taliban. And he had the last stronghold before the Taliban were going to take over the whole entire country. So on September 9th, he was killed. And I was very much aware of that. So when I saw the planes, I knew this was connected. There was something in my mind I knew. And I knew that moment as I watched the smoke across the river that my two countries were about to go to war. And it was just like this numbness. So Osama, me and our other roommate, we just started to walk along the promenade in New York. And it was a scary experience. And we were in Atlantic Avenue, which is an Arab neighborhood. So that's where I understood the term Islamophobia. There was just just a lot of hate. George Bush was on TV talking about them and us. And the war on terror had begun. And we were the center of it. And I, as an Afghan, became on the front line of this. So I went back to my apartment, kind of hid there for a bit. We were scared. I think as Muslims, we were scared. We thought there would be fires. It wasn't as bad as we thought initially. I think the backlash happened in time. And you can see now how bad it is. And I wrote an article for Sandy, (laughs) for Pacific News Service, about the backlash that was going to happen and how I felt about it and how scared I was and for my family, for our communities. At the time, that piece that I wrote was I don't think America's ready for it. They were still mourning the deaths of 3,000 people. And for me, it was not a surprise that this happened because I had been watching what the United States was doing in the Middle East and in Afghanistan all along. And so this was a gradual. But of course, I was surprised at the level of it, at the, you know, at the audacity of it, at how the whole thing was organized, at how the United States intelligence failure that occurred afterwards. I mean, so I wrote this personal piece and it went out on alternate 
which was, I don't know if it still exists. It's another wire. And the mainstream media got a hold of it. And all of a sudden, I became the Afghan voice of America. <laughs> Everybody was at my house wanting to interview me. That included NBC, MTV. Remember, at this point, very few people in America know what Afghanistan even is. Afghan was either a blanket or a breed of dogs. Okay. <laughs> so right. it, that the level of ignorance, only those who really had some, you know, history from the 1980s Olympics or the Soviet invasion or sort of your policy wonky types understood or had some, you know, military types, they knew. But your average American really didn't know. And all of a sudden, we were talking about it all the time and talking about how women were treating the Taliban. And it, CNN was replaying the scene where the women in the stadium was getting assassinated. And, and then so I had to, what I did was like have a mini press conference because I, was, I found myself doing the same interview. Even at NYU's Middle Eastern program, very few people had any kind of expertise on Afghanistan. I found myself as the expert that I wasn't. And then after I had this interview with BBC, global BBC, one of my colleagues at AFP, a friend in Pakistan who worked for AFP, he saw it. He called me. He's like, hey, Fariba, I know that you're really upset that you didn't get the AFP job in Iran, but do you want to come to Pakistan? I think you would be a great asset to our team, and I can give you a three-month stringer contract. And I said, oh, how did you think of me? And he said, well, I saw you on TV <laughs> talking about it. And I said, well, that's good. I'm glad these interviews actually led to a job. But now how I was going to tell my parents and kind of justify it to them was hard. So I just didn't tell them. I did the what a lot of us people from this part of the world do is don't ask, don't tell. My mom, she didn't know I was going to Pakistan or I was going to leave school. So I went to my professors and I said, can I take a sabbatical? Could I take a break? Because it doesn't make sense for me to be in the classroom right now. I need to go back to my country and I need to cover this. And at that point, nobody was going back to Afghanistan, very few people, because the Taliban were still in charge, but they were preparing for war. And the entire press corps, the foreign press corps was in Islamabad in Pakistan getting ready. And I was one of them. So they said, sure. My professors were very understanding. They said, we can hold on to your scholarship. And when you come back, we'll continue with the program. So I said, great. So I went to Pakistan, started working at AFP, working day and night. I mean, we were busy and I was covering the war through the phone, actually talking to Northern Alliance commanders on the phone. The language came in really handy. So breaking news for a wire service, as you know, is just often like sentence by sentence filling out information. And I really wanted to do the bigger features. And I was kind of begging my editor for that. I said, can I go to the refugee camps, please? Can I do a story about this? Can I do a story about women? And slowly I started to get more freelance opportunities. They were allowing me that because I was a stringer. And that's how I started radio as well. One of my friends who had started, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, Free Speech Radio News through the Pacifica Network. He called and he's like, I'm sending you a microphone. We just want to do Q&As with you. And I said, I don't know anything about radio. And he said, well, you're going to learn because I'm sending you the equipment. San Francisco Chronicle wanted stories from me. Everybody wanted stories from me. Mother Jones. All of a sudden, I found myself with so much work, I didn't even know what to do. And AFP was like, wait, wait, you're supposed to work for us. You're doing too many articles for other people. And then I started to go to the field and do some more stuff. But it's still in Pakistan. The war started and I wanted to go in. I wanted to go back to Afghanistan. But then things unraveled in a really unfortunate way. 
So the ISI, the Pakistani Intelligence Service, started to notice me, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to this day, I don't know why. I have my guesses. And uh, they came to AFP. They said she needs to leave. We are not renewing her journalism visa anymore. And if he didn't stand up for me at the time, I was not important enough to them. And they said, what's going on? And I said, I have no idea. I'm nobody, (laughs) you know, but I did have access to the Taliban. At this point, I had now a lot of sources on the ground in Afghanistan. I had access to the Northern Alliance commanders. I had access to refugees. I had access to Afghans all over the country. So this was maybe a threat to them. But what happened next is that one of my colleagues from AFP had come from India and he told me there's an Indian woman, human rights worker, who wants to meet with you and get some contacts from you about an Afghan woman. Can you meet with her? And I didn't think about it then because I didn't know, you know, that this is not a good idea. A human rights worker coming from India to Pakistan is going to be followed. So you don't meet with them if you're a journalist, okay? You just don't. I didn't understand that. And neither Mm -hmm. did my colleague. I met with her at this restaurant, which is still open here in Islamabad, called Papa Sally's. And this is the restaurant where all the foreigners go, all the diplomats go. This was sort of the known restaurant. And it was obviously watched by the Pakistani intelligence. And this is my guess, that I met with this woman. I pulled out some business cards of Afghan women. I introduced myself. We had a nice lunch. Then I left. And subsequently, after that, all these problems started with the Pakistani government and me. And of course, I was like very upset. Like, what are you talking about? I haven't even been here for three months. And then I said, okay, fine. I don't need to work with AFP. If you guys aren't going to back me up, I'm just going to go work for someone else. I had a friend who was running a Newsday Bureau. And I asked him, I said, hey, can I come and hang out with you? I'm a refugee anyway. I don't need to be legal. And he said, sure, you can start writing for Newsday. So I went and stayed at his house. When I came back to AFP to pick up my equipment, They threatened me. They said, you need to leave or else they're going to close my office. They're going to close the office here. They're very serious about you staying here. And I just burst into tears. I was like, but I don't, why do I even matter? You have like Christian Amanpour here. You have all of these famous journalists who are way bigger of any kind of threat in terms of information. Why me? And they said, we don't know. And we don't really care because We need to keep our operation running here. And you're a threat, basically, to them. So let's just have an amicable breach of contract. And so I went back to my apartment where I was staying in Islamabad. And they had plain clothes, secret service surrounding my house. And uh, they were very nice to me. They're like, you have 24 hours to leave. And I asked them, I said, why are you guys doing this? I don't know what I've done. And they said, we don't know. We're the lower ranking guys. All we know is you have to leave. And then they came and I was trying to figure out what to do next. I was just sort of like, okay, I left school. My mom doesn't even know I'm here. In fact, she would call me and people were speaking Urdu, which is the Pakistani language in the background. And she'd say, why why are people speaking Urdu? I said, mom, it's New York. Everybody speaks, you know, there's lots of foreign languages here. And my sister was hearing me on the radio and she was like, you're in Pakistan? And I said, yeah, yeah, I forgot to tell you guys that. So it's become a comedy routine with the family now. But again, I was just like, the world is against me. I try to work in Iran and they don't give me a visa. I try to work in Pakistan and I'm being kicked out for for what? And then I called my aunt in Germany. I told you I have a big family and right now I even have family 
from Russia to Brazil to Pakistan. This is the good thing. We have this really bad joke in our community. If you never want to go to a hotel, have a war in your country. Anyway, so I called my aunt, my dad's sister, and I said, you know, the next process in this whole Afghan story is going to be in Bonn, Germany, where they're going to choose a president for Afghanistan. The Taliban are going to lose the war soon, it looks like, from what I'm seeing in the battlefield. And I think I should just come to Germany. Can you guys put me up for a while? She said, oh, I didn't even know you were in Pakistan. Sure, come, come. I'll make you tea and food and we'll, we'll help you out. And I said, great. So that's what I did. I packed up my bags. A friend came, took me to the airport. And to this day, I do not know why I was deported from Pakistan. And I have not returned. When I tried a couple of times to get the visa, I was rejected. But then, yeah, I went to the Bonn conference. I covered that for the San Francisco Chronicle. And then eventually in 2004, after I graduated NYU, I went to live in Afghanistan. And for the next seven years, I was between Afghanistan, New York, and Fremont, California, covering the region, Pakistan, Afghanistan, for various publications. And it stayed freelance. And that's the thing. I stayed freelance because I really, really value my independence. But also, I was making good enough money at that point that I didn't need to be hired by anyone. And I found when you do work for someone like I did at AFP, the, the kind of betrayal that I tasted there in Pakistan, the lack of support really left me with a broken heart with any news agency. And it was like, no, I really rather if I can survive independently, then I'm going to continue being independent because I get to choose the stories I want to do. And that's really important to me. So at that point, I was doing just fine. And then I had these projects in my mind. I was going to write a book. I was going to write a report. I was going to do this. And there was a lot of support out there for journalism, and especially from out of Afghanistan at that point. So, so that's how journalism for me started and continued. And was it at that point that you wrote your book, or was that later once you had left Afghanistan? The genesis of the book started when I went to Afghanistan to cover it in 2002. I traveled across the country from Kabul to Herat and stopped at every province. And then I realized that there was a big story that nobody was covering. And that was the poppy trade and how it was affecting people. It was a whole different war. The opium trade in Afghanistan was the biggest in the world. We were the largest supplier of heroin. And very few journalists really understood or wrote about it. And so I was going to do it, I decided. And then specifically, I was going to look into women's roles because I had met a 12-year-old girl who was a child bride sold to an opium smuggler who was much, much older than her. And she had asked me for help. And so it became a story and it was a cover story for the Sunday Times magazine. I got a One World Press Award for it. And then I knew that this was bigger than just a magazine story. So I started to write the proposal and it took a long time for it to become a book. And it became a book once I came back to the Bay Area. I left Afghanistan. I married, I had kids and I wrote it. It was a seven year process. Oh, wow. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was a long, long haul to publication of a book. But in that meantime, I was writing a lot of other stories. I did a report called Afghanistan Inc. It was one of the first to come out to expose the level of corruption of American contractors working in Afghanistan and the aid development community from the Lewis Berger group, who are still there, to Chemonics, all of these big companies that get USAID funding. That was something that I was really proud of. But really, the book was my goal all along. So it took a long time to get to that goal. And it was after I left Afghanistan. But the book also became the ending of my relationship with Afghanistan. 
that I can no longer go back to because of the safety concerns that occurred afterwards. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, the drug trade doesn't normally like being exposed. And so uh, was it another case where you had to leave and you kind of looked around where to go? And obviously you have roots in the Bay Area, so you went back there. Or what happens next? And take us up to how you got to where you are today in Istanbul. Sure, sure. I know I'm old. It's a long story. (laughs) 47 years old. No, it's super interesting. bear, Bear with me. So from 2002 to 2007, Afghanistan was sort of home. And that meant that my life had to go on, not just as a journalist, but as a someone who wants to get married and have kids. And so I met my husband, he was Afghan, and he grew up in Iran and Afghanistan. And we met at the UN where he was working and I was reporting. And then we got married and I got pregnant. And I was still reporting there. Our long-term plan was to go back to the U.S. so that I could have my kids. But also my father was very ill and getting worse. And I felt like I had to be there for him. And my husband at the time wanted to get an American education. So in 2007, the last story I covered was a bombing. And the last summer I was in Afghanistan, three bombs went off near our home. Our windows shook at some point. And I was five months pregnant. And it was sort of a moment of, okay, do I want to stay and raise my child in a war zone like I grew up? You know, we were planning to leave for some time anyway, but it became more than about us or me or him. It was about now having children and what's best for them. And I think it just seemed natural that no matter how much I want to stay there or my husband wanted to stay there, it didn't matter because we were doing well for ourselves and things like raising a child in that environment, and both of us had grown up in war, was not a healthy thing to do. So that's one of the biggest reasons I left. But also the last day, I remember I covered the last bombing, and I went back to the scene where 29 people had been killed. A suicide bomber had gone inside a bus where the Afghan National Army was being transported. I went to the neighborhood, and there were just still pieces of flesh hanging on trees. Everything was being cleaned up. And Life was going on as normal. It was around the Eid holiday, which is a Muslim holiday where we have a lot of food. And the bakery had opened up already selling food as if nothing had happened. And I remember thinking, there's something wrong with this. Things happen. There's blood still. There's flesh. And things just go back to normal so fast that nothing changes. And I don't think it's a good idea to stay here anymore because it's becoming too normal for me. It's time to leave. When something like that becomes so normal that you don't even blink, you just keep covering it as if it's another suicide bombing. That trauma becomes normalized, then you do have to make a change. And for me, it was time to leave. And I think for my husband at the time, it was the right thing to do. And so I left when I was five months pregnant and I haven't returned since. So I wanted to return, of course, but once the book came out, like you said, it caused some issues specifically with the people I had worked with. I, you know, I traveled all over Afghanistan for that book, specifically in the border areas and villages and places that I traveled with drug dealers with some very shady characters, which I wouldn't do now. And that caused problems for the people that I worked with. Foreign journalists go inside these countries. And yeah, I'm of Afghanistan from it, but I also get to leave it because I have an American passport. That's a huge privilege that I don't deny at all. And we leave behind our fixers and we leave behind our translators. They're the ones who have to deal with the consequences. 
and I am so sorry for whatever trauma I caused with the book or with whatever story I did to the people in Afghanistan because they don't deserve it. So one of the questions you had was, what are your regrets? And I think that's one of my regrets is many of us go in without realizing, wanting to further our careers, wanting to write these stories. We are very idealistic about our stories, but they do come back to haunt the locals who are helping us, especially when it comes to things that are dangerous, like the drug trade, like the mafia, these kinds of things, or even corrupt government officials. So that's something that I like to express. So was anybody I, yeah. killed or anything? No, no, nobody was killed. People were roughed up. And then drug dealers, they don't forget things. This is something I've learned that until they're killed, of course, the turf war that goes on in between drug dealers in Afghanistan is really no different than what goes on in Mexico. Sort of the Latin American heavyweights in the cartel industry, they're much bigger. In Afghanistan, it's, it's a big business, but it's not monopolized by anyone. The other thing was that there were government officials that I mentioned in the book, and some of them had followers. And so I got death threats. But I was in California at this point. So it didn't matter, right? And then there was this one driver that I worked with in the Northeast. And he was just a lovely gentleman. He took me to the opium bazaar. And he warned me against it several times. And I think after I left, he invited me to his son's wedding a few years ago. And I said, no, I'm sorry, I can't come. And then he told me, it's a good thing you didn't come because, you know, so-and-so drug dealer came to my house and said, did she come? I mean, this is, we're talking now, what, it's been 12 years. And they still want wow. to know where I am and if I've come back. So that's one reason I don't go back because I don't want anyone else to get any kind of anything, you know, consequence to what happened. But did it help people? Because that was the ultimate well, I did I write it? Like, I wanted these stories out there. They mattered. And also, there's so few stories of Afghans writing about Afghanistan. Most of them are written by non-Afghans. And yeah, we have a few memoirs here and there, but very few are journalists. I'm glad to say that there are more and more Afghan journalists right now. The New York Times is the correspondent there is Afghan himself, and he's doing a wonderful job, but very few. So for me, it did do some good. I think it brought a lot of awareness to the international community, but also to Afghan girls. I get emails all the time by young Afghan women who feel inspired, who feel like they can get out of their prisons. I think it brought some inspiration and awareness, and I think that was worth it. But I would have probably done certain things differently if I could go back and rewrite the book or write another chapter to the book or whatever. But it was, you know, an experience. Right. You still would have done it maybe just a few things differently. So what's the name of the book again? It's called Opium Nation, Child Brides, Drug Lords, and One Woman's Journey Through Afghanistan. Yeah, sounds like a great book. I'll definitely check it out after this. And then, yeah, I guess just catch us up to present and how you got from Afghanistan to California to now Turkey. I don't know, there might be more steps in between. <laughs> Not really, because I spent the next eight years not really like, first of all, the book sold in 2009, which was a miracle because the publishing industry was going down the drain. This was during the economic recession. And my agent, who was wonderful, she was able to sell it. And I was excited. I barely got an advance. But you know, whatever I got, I it paid for daycare. My husband and I moved to Fremont, where the family was. And he started going to school and working. And I 
started working from home. We had our daughter, Manu, who's 12 years old now. And then I, we had our other daughter, Andisha, three and a half years later. She's almost nine. And I became a caregiver for the most part and worked part-time after the book. I started to do a lot of talks about Afghanistan. This is where I felt comfortable being an expert because now I had a lot of information and background and history. And I could go and talk from Columbia to Stanford about my experiences in Afghanistan and what should and shouldn't have happened and what mistakes were made politically. Again, as sort of a cultural translator, as sort of a political analyst. And I did that. And so I supported myself partly with that. The book didn't make a lot of money for me to say that it did, but it did open a lot of doors professionally. And writing a book is a great thing, actually, even if it's not going to sell big. It's one of those things that will stay in history. Like, I think it was one of the best experiences. It was hard. It was exhausting. Sometimes it was just like I wanted to give up because initially I wasn't sure that it was going to sell. But I kept with it. And I think I would encourage younger people listening that if you have a big project in mind and it's your baby, then don't give up on it and you find ways to make it work. And it did in the end. It is something that I'm really happy that it did happen. And I still get emails and fan mail and people asking. Actually, just yesterday, I got an author who's writing a fiction in Tennessee. He wants to talk to me about authenticity for his book on Afghanistan. Uh, He was asking my permission if he could use me as a character for his fiction and how similar his character was to me going back. And I said, yeah, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So I get a lot of emails still about the book. I do realize that I do have a unique position to be both Afghan and to be American. And I try to speak to that whenever I can. I don't deny it. So in America, I spent the next eight years I spent in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it was probably some of the hardest years of my life because I wasn't doing journalism full time. I was a mother, I was a wife, and I was a daughter. And that became sort of the priority. While my husband was trying to lift himself up with an American education, he started a business and he really stepped up. He was the model immigrant. And my kids, they are the most important thing in my life. So career took a second. And sometimes we do have to make that choice. I hear women talking a lot about don't import other people's limitations. You can do it all. Yeah, you can. And I have in a lot of ways been able to do what I want to do especially being able to move to Turkey. But it's never been easy. And I don't think there's any formula that says, oh, yeah, you know, I have a strategy and this is how you do it. And it's a mess, you know, (laughs) to be a mom and to be a career woman, especially in a flailing journalism industry, it's hard. And so I still do it, but I would never go up there and be this sort of like face of, Yes, you can do it. It's so easy. Just work hard. No, it's really, really hard. And a lot of women are now offended by this question when they're asked, how do you handle being a mother? And men, how come men are not asked these questions? They should be asked, actually. How do you handle fatherhood and career? That's a question men should be asked a lot more, right? And so we get that question often. But I think it's a fair question because it's still very much a struggle. And I do it and I'm happy that I do it, but it's never been easy. And I think it'll be a constant struggle. My kids become part of my work because I work from home. So they help me. And there are two girls and I've raised them as feminists. And they are very much, especially my oldest one, is very much interested in journalism and wants to know everything I do, wants to help with it. So that really helps. That's been awesome to watch. 
just to go back those eight years I was in the U.S., I also wrote another proposal for a book. And it was after Opium Nation was published and I did the speaking tours, the speaking tours started to dry up because Afghanistan was no longer in the news. Syria became the big story from the Middle East, and I was not Syrian, and I was not going to go to Syria. Initially, I was giving up assignments to go to Libya and elsewhere through the publications I worked for, because for me, once I had kids, I decided I wasn't going to do frontline reporting anymore. It was too big of a risk, and I, I, I want my children to have a mother. And I know a lot of other journalists might resent me saying that, but it's a personal choice. I respect a lot of women and men who do do it, who are parents, but for me, I'm more comfortable taking a backseat and sort of reporting about things that are not as urgent as like the war that's happening right there and then and wearing a flak jacket and getting embedded. Actually, I never actually did that. I was never embedded with the military. I hardly ever met anybody in the military. Most of my work was done with the local people and the issues that concern them. I don't have a top-down approach. I work with people on the bottom. That's kind of my journalism, my philosophy in journalism is that. So anyway, the eight years in, in America is kind of a blur because I never really wanted to live in the Bay Area. The only reason I went back was for family. And my father, he eventually passed away. And when he did, three months later, we moved to Turkey. That was the sort of deal I made with my husband in Afghanistan that I did not want to live in America. We were only going to go back for him to do his education, for the kids to be born so they would have the American citizenship and so that I could be there for my father. And I did all of those things. So it was time to leave. He agreed, begrudgingly, but we came to Istanbul and we started our life here in 2015 when things were really hot. There were terrorist attacks. There was a coup in 2016. So I had a lot to cover. But before I did all that in the Bay Area, I did start writing this second book and it was called Nostalgia Rice and Homeland Kebabs. And if there's anything I want to finish that I left unfinished, it's this book. But it was about being pioneers of Little Kabul. And it was a cultural lens of Afghan-Americans because you don't read many stories about Afghan-Americans. So, you know, my friend Khalid Husseini, who wrote The Kite Runner, he's sort of the voice of Afghan-Americans in literature. And with journalism, I wanted to do something nonfiction about our communities in the United States, that community is getting larger and larger with each wave of immigration. And it was, it was a food memoir. I thought, oh, well, maybe this will even sell better than Opium Nation. And also, I want people to know about us outside of war. But it didn't sell. So the same agent who sold Opium Nation to HarperCollins was not. It just maybe I wasn't the food writer. Maybe that's why. Maybe Afghanistan was no longer the flavor of the month in the news. So whatever reason, I left it. I have a 70-page proposal and one day I hope to finish it. But maybe when I have to go back to the Bay Area, which I hope I don't. But And then we came to Istanbul, and I've been working from Turkey since then, and freelancing still. I applied for one job for the LA Times, and that never came through. And that's it. I've been able to sort of continue being a freelancer. And I'm kind of like, wow, I, I can't believe I've continued. While every other freelancer here is looking for a job, I'm not. Because I also realized that Again, when you work for an agency or a newspaper, your time is theirs. Your time is not your kids. And I have the advantage of choosing the stories that I do. So my work in Afghanistan has been documented, covered, written about. And so I would really like to highlight the work that I've done in Turkey. It doesn't get enough attention because sure. I obviously I haven't been here long. Please, yeah, give me yeah. some of the highlights. So, of course, 
the latest highlight is the podcast, right? So, which is, I'm very excited about that we started this podcast and I went from print reporting to radio to podcasting. Kind of growing as a journalist has been wonderful and trying something new. So when you get stale and you start to feel like you're not learning anything, you have to try something different. And for me, podcasting was like, what is that? And then I started listening and I said, I really like this form of journalism. I really think this might be a new thing and I'm enjoying it. So about about eight of us freelancer friends and I hang out with the freelance crowd. There's this sort of hierarchy that correspondents hang out together and the freelancers hang out together. Either way, I'm on the Asian side of Istanbul and not sort of in the central where there's neighborhoods on the other side and the European side where the diplomats also live, that they have these cliques, right? And I'm not a part of that. I live my own very different life. I have different circles of people who are not journalists as well. I like to be more integrated into Turkish life. But yet I do have a freelancer circle and they said, hey, you know, let's start a podcast partly because we don't get to write the stories that we want. It always has to have an American angle. It always has to have some kind of clickbait like Trump or Erdogan or or whatever. Why don't we do something? There's so many important stories out there in this part of the world that's not being reported. And it doesn't have to be necessarily for an American audience if they're not interested in it. America is so introverted right now, especially with the coronavirus happening. I think that's going to actually exacerbate it. It's a daunting reminder this virus of how connected we are globally. But at the same time, I think the result of this is going to be we're going to go turn inwards more, closing borders and everyone's just reporting on their own people. And kind of like the reason we started this podcast on spec is to get away from that and to show, okay, we're connected. So we started it as an idea and it actually took form. It took a year to take form. We worked for free, all of us. And it's been wonderful teamwork. I'm the oldest and the most experienced in the field. So I've been training a lot, but I'm also learning from younger people who are much more advanced in technology. And so that's the latest project that we've done. And we've done stories from around, not just Turkey, but around the world. But what we did from Turkey is we usually try to work with local reporters to do those stories. We hire freelancers. We started a Kickstarter that was successful and we're still working out of that. We're hoping to get grants. Ideally, if we can get people to pay for the service, that would be the best, like a Patreon account, because it is an independent news podcast. And that's what we've been trying to market mostly, that we're not connected to any corporation or government or big mainstream news agency and appeals to people on some level who are sick of the broken narrative constantly being told. But I don't know. Let's see. It's a startup. No one's making money, you know, but we're working really hard. And on the side, everybody else has another gig. Everybody else is working. One of our reporters just started working with Reuters. So he's probably not going to be able to work with us anymore. (laughs) I hope he does. But also, you know, people are finding jobs, but they work on the side. But let's see what happens. I'm excited about it. My own work has been compromised by this podcast a lot because it takes a lot of time. Sure. Yeah. Some of the things I've done in the last four years, I covered the coup, the night of the coup. You know, I've written stuff for Good Magazine. I think my favorite story so far that I did that I spent a lot of time was I did a series on Turkish feminism last year with my Turkish colleague, Özge Sebzeci. I don't know what I'd do without her. She translates for me. My Turkish is minimal. She knows what's going on here locally, which is so important. And she's my cultural translator, and we work together really well. And we did a story on rising divorce. We did a profile of a woman who started an organization called We Will Stop Femicides. 
Femicides is a big thing here. Domestic violence is very high. I mean, it's a big thing everywhere, but the numbers are pretty high. What I've learned in Turkey about the feminist movement is that it's so intersectional. You have people from Islamist organizations, you have secular organizations, Kurdish, Armenian, everybody comes together on March 8th and they have this incredible march, 10,000 people on this thoroughfare called Istiklal Boulevard or Avenue. And they all come together to fight against all kinds of patriarchy and domestic violence. And just seeing the solidarity between these women was fascinating to me because I hadn't even seen that in the U.S. So I wanted to dig deep into how that formed and what the history of it was, uh, who the characters were. So I did sort of a 3,000 word piece for Refinery29, which was like, oh, who reads that? But actually, it's pretty big in the U.S. It's a, it's a women's website like, like Vogue or Vanity Fair, but it's online. And they ran it and it did get a lot of attention. My journalism sort of evolved and I like to give a solution at the end of every article I write or include that in my work, which I didn't before. Because what I've learned in reporting is that people are sick of hearing just the problem. In journalism school, we're taught that that's not our problem. We're just supposed to report the news. We have nothing to do with the solution. But actually, people expect that from us. And I feel like the news is so grim right now. They need hope. And it's part of our job to find that hope. So I've made that as a tenet of my reporting. And that's why I did that whole series on Turkish feminism. And Turkish feminism gives me hope for the future, especially being an Afghan woman. And I think most people are aware that the rate of violence against women inside Afghanistan and outside is so high. It's so high. It also has to do with war, emasculation, yeah, all kinds of things, unemployment. How do we change that? So I'm not an activist. I'm still very much a journalist. But at the same time, I think we need to come to terms with finding ways to tell people how we can make things better. And that's kind of what I've done in my journalism in Turkey. I've also written about migration. Again, just the Afghan experience or the Syrian experience. I've gotten to know the Syrian community here really well. And my own refugee experience has come in really handy. Turkey is the largest host country for refugees. You know, you have 3.5 million refugees living here, mostly Syrian, but also Afghans more and more. And so I've written their stories and some of it has made individual impact, which I'm happy to see. A lot of the people I've written about have gotten asylum to the United States or they've been able to build their lives. I did this one story about a young woman who was raped by her smuggler. She was 16 when she came here. She's almost 20 now. She's doing so well for herself. And after that story came out, she just changed. She flourished. Getting her voice out there made the biggest difference. She does kickboxing. She knows how to target shoot. She's in university right now. She's still trying to get to the U.S. But Trump's policies have kind of stopped refugees from going right now especially during the pandemic. So everyone's on pause. So that's kind of what I've been doing in Turkey, but it's not getting the same attention that my work from Afghanistan did. Maybe I need to write a book. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the podcast is great. I've listened to the first half dozen of them. I mean, the stories like uh, Gays, I believe was involved in the first one following a Turkish journalist as they're basically facing jail time or censorship from the increasingly authoritarian government. I mean, the one about water issues in Iraq, I found extremely interesting. And there's one about truffle hunters. And yeah, they are very interesting stories that I haven't heard anywhere else. And I'd recommend everybody check it out. 
Okay, so the next part is the lightning round. It's more fast-paced questions. Feel free to answer at whatever length you want. Do you feel ready? Yeah, go for it. So the first question is, what is a publication you read or listen to or watch just for fun? So any medium? I listened to PRI's The World. It was my favorite show when I was in the Bay Area. So I'm so excited to be working for them because they do stories that are different. It's not so news-based. They cover things that are more hopeful and feature-ish. I listen to that almost every day. What is the best journalistic article piece, again, whatever medium you've consumed recently? So I've been trying to familiarize myself with podcasts and podcasting is an entire different community. So I like that it's so collaborative and people listen to each other's shows just like you and I are doing and and going on each other's shows. So I just listened to Heavyweight recently. Jonathan Goldstein, I think is the host's name. And he did this episode on, it was called Scott. I know he does these episodes with people's names. And it was about this World War II gun and finding it because Scott had sold his father's prized possession And it meant a lot to him. And he kind of tries to go into these stories deep. And the narrative style and the journalism that he uses to do it was fascinating to me. It was so well done. So I definitely recommend that. And then is there any particular subject matter you read about or consume specifically that isn't related to your job? I read a lot about parenting and food. That's my downtime stuff. I've been, during lockdown here, during isolation, I've been cooking like a maniac, but I think a lot of people are doing that. I developed an interest in food when I had my kids. I was not really particularly into cooking. It was my rebellion, you know? I was taught to that you have to cook. So I said, I don't have to cook, but now I enjoy cooking. So yeah, I read about it. I read recipes. I like reading like the food memoir kind of stuff. How do you manage your work-life balance or do you even believe in it? <laughs> I don't believe in balance. <laughs> I wrote a blog about that. Actually, my daughter and I wrote a blog about it together. One way I've dealt with it is that my daughters kind of are included in the work. I'm not a believer in this, like, I can't talk about my work in front of my kids because it's too violent, it's too disturbing. That's a point of contention between their father and I. He thinks I shouldn't talk about it at all. Whereas my oldest daughter is always wanting to know. And I, yeah, I grew up knowing way more than I should. I don't tell her like this many women were killed and how they were killed in Turkey, but she reads. Kids nowadays know way more than what we did in terms of information. The information, you can't lock it out. I think the best way to deal with it is actually tell them your way. And so that's how I've included them in my work. So with the podcast, they've kind of been a part of it. That's why I asked Bonnie to write a blog for us. And she did. And my daughter, she likes to do posters and artwork. My younger daughter, Andisha, and she's also likes to help out. We've done interviews with them. Like we're doing an upcoming episode on children and I'll probably interview them for it. So as a freelancer, I can do that. I think they're going to become my little assistants, you know, child labor (laughs) as they get older. The next question is, is Twitter important to you? No, I really, honestly, as far as social media is concerned, I much prefer Facebook because I have a very engaged following on Facebook and it's a place where I don't have to stop at 143 words and it's not so crowded and you can build relationships on Facebook. Whereas Twitter, I find it's like this big party. It's so loud. You can't hear anybody. 
and sometimes everybody's hitting each other. So I don't enjoy Twitter, but I find that it's necessary for me to be on it for work. I think it's become a requirement that you have to do it, whether you like it or not. So yeah, I appreciate the followers and I would love to be better at it. But just generally, I find it a really, it's not a supportive place. Whereas Facebook, I can find a lot more kindness. Definitely. And then if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? John Lee Anderson (laughs) from The New Yorker. Yeah, John Lee Anderson. He's been writing for a very long time. I really enjoy his work and his approach. So, yeah, that's it. I think he's fluent in Spanish. He's reported from a lot of places in the world. He does like a lot of the reporter at large, those long 5,000 word pieces. He does those. He just has a voice, you know, with writers or reporters. I, I look for that style and voice and as a role model, right, that you kind of want to develop your own voice and that John Lee Anderson has that. And then what is one thing you wish you could travel back and tell your younger self? That I'll always be on the margins. Nothing will be easy. You will struggle. And that you're just going to have to be okay with that struggle. That I will never be the part of the group of people who makes the most money or who has the most power or the most privilege. And that's okay. That fight for my rights, whether I'm a woman or a minority in America or anywhere will continue and that I have to be prepared for that. I tell my daughters this. That's what I would tell my younger self. I think my younger self didn't know. I thought it would get easier as I got older. It didn't. The next one is, what is one thing that most people don't know about you? When I get really upset, I talk to myself. But when I'm in public, my lips move. You don't hear me. So I kind of look crazy. Most people don't know that. They also don't know that I have. Also, I have albinism, so I have nystagmus. And so when I see you across the street and you wave and I don't wave back, it's because I haven't seen you. I can't see. You think I can see because I don't wear glasses most of the time, but actually I'm legally blind. So that's one thing people don't know about me. That's important to know that you're not snubbing them. It's, you don't understand. I've lost friends over that. They don't know, right? So, like, you were so snooty. You didn't even say hi to me. Like, I swear I didn't see you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. Okay, this is and, fun. All right. The next question. <laughs> and then, what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? Taliban Shuffle, which is about Kim Barker, was hilarious. Kim Barker, the New York Times correspondent from Afghanistan. And then it was turned into a movie, which I found was hilarious, but a lot of people are offended by it. It's called Whiskey Tango Foxtrot with Tina Fey. Do you know it? Yeah, I, I yeah, thought it was movie. hilarious. I found it was her story and others were like, oh, great. Another white woman goes to Afghanistan and talks about how people are crazy and gun-toting, watching pornography type of thing. But for me, it was like, this is her story and it's hilarious. So let her have her story. I guess that's the first thing that comes to mind that I enjoyed because it wasn't so serious. We need to laugh more. We need to laugh at ourselves more. I think people are watching Trevor Noah and The Daily Show and John Oliver more than reading our stuff. And we need to recognize why. Right. So maybe we need to have more news comedies, more journalists should become comedians, maybe. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's true. Uh, but yeah, no, I've seen that movie and I really liked it. I forgot it was based on a book or maybe I didn't know. So those are yeah, two that nobody's touched on yet. So that's great. And then the final question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? I hope I never have to make that choice. Because for me, I think if you take away journalism from me, you've taken a core part of my identity. Maybe something completely different, like a TV producer, like making movies. That would be fun. Yeah, for sure. I think being a producer would be fun. (laughs) A way to get out and see the world not necessarily doing journalism. Okay, great. Well, I really appreciate you taking all the time to talk to me. Thanks again so much, Fariba, for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jake. It was fun. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Fariba Nawa, the host of OnSpec Podcast and a freelance journalist based in Turkey. I'll post links to some of Fariba's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five-star rating. Beyond that, it would also be a huge help if you write a positive review saying what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. And if you like this episode in particular, you should go check out OnSpec as well, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at, at @foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. If you have specific feedback for the show, you're also welcome to email me at foreignpod at gmail.com. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, November 15th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Correspondence.